The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. encourage you to follow as I read God's Word this morning. We're back in Acts, Acts chapter 18. We'll be considering Acts for another four or five weeks yet. A time in Paul's life when he makes a new venture in a new place, and we're going to see some challenges that faced him and some of the blessings that God brought as well. Acts 18, I read the first 17 verses. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have in this city many who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a manner of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge over these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is God's Word. It speaks of ancient things, but it speaks into our lives today. Let's ask the Lord to do that. Father, Paul was a unique man on a unique errand, but you are the same God. You, his Savior, are our Savior. So we pray that you might teach and encourage us from this, your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. I will never 
put before you any direct comparison of my ministry and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And yet, as I read and studied this particular passage, it kept coming back to me in sort of waves of familiarity, as people say, deja vu all over again, that this chapter described as much a part of my past ministry for Christ in ways that I just felt I was in this chapter living these things. Let me tell you about that just briefly so you understand why I say that. It was half my lifetime ago in 1980. I was 31 years old. I'd been ordained in 1974, so I'd already been a pastor for about six years at the time. But I was ministering in a liberal denomination, which I had known from quite soon after ordination. I could not abide in for a long time, certainly not for a lifetime. I was suffocating doctrinally and not finding fellowship and realizing I had to go a different way. But there was a real blockage in the path, a practical thing. You have to eat. You have to live. I had four children and a wife already. Better put that in the other order, a wife and four children. (laughs) And uh, that was inadvertent. And they liked to eat, and they liked the idea of a roof over their head. And what do you do? You know, it's not easy to make that kind of a transfer in your life. But finally, after much consideration and circumstances passing, I felt the calling of God to depart from a secure salary, a position I could have remained in indefinitely. I wasn't in any conflict there. But I stepped into this denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, as a church planter in an uncertain situation in a northern city with 12 people who were interested in planting a church and $1,000 a month promised to me, and that was half the amount you needed minimally to live on. Oh, and did I mention the country was in recession in 1980 and 81? That was a big and risky step. I felt a little bit like Paul coming to the city of Corinth as we knew we had a big task before us and we were literally just hanging on the Lord to support us. There were people who actively did not want us doing what we were doing. A denominational official of the denomination I had left wrote a letter. A copy came into my hands of a letter he had written to pastors in the area of his denomination warning about me as a divisive person that he said was going to steal the sheep of the churches uh, surrounding. I tried to ignore that, but your spirit doesn't easily ignore something like that. I sought to minister in authentic ways to people, to guide them to Christ, to pray with them, to work beside them, to preach God's Word, and very, very slowly, from a dozen to 20 to 40 to a little further, a little further, As months went by, our little congregation grew. But I will admit there were days when I thought, did I make a terrible mistake? What am I doing here? Did I do what someone had said I was doing, committing career suicide? I remember well the day in the fall of 1981 when our little group, 40 members strong, decided on a Sunday afternoon with no dissenting votes that we would buy a property with several acres with an old house on it, and we took on a big risk. You know what that cost? A several acre strategically situated, highly visible place with a house we could meet in 
$60,000. That was like a fortune to us. We had to mortgage our home, some of us, to make that step. And we still said, are we doing the right thing? Is God going to supply? Today I know that those years when the challenges were stacked up so high on every hand and the needs were great were a time when I never prayed harder in my life. And God never more visibly worked as I prayed hard. And I think those were times too when I probably grew spiritually at a faster rate than I ever had before or maybe since. I don't know. All our family's needs were met on time. The Lord provided That house was added on to several times in five years to accommodate a growing church. God proved abundantly faithful to the calling he'd given us. Now, why should that be surprising? It's not, except when you're living it and when the challenges are there before you every single day and you're being stretched in your mind and your spirit. I can only tell you how much it makes me feel like Paul being in Corinth, a brand new place, wondering, how do I minister here? What do I do? And you don't need to be in professional ministry in order to be tested and challenged in similar ways in your own sphere of experience. Hanging on by your fingernails, maybe economically, maybe in terms of career or relationships or whatever the the big challenges are, the big needs are in your life, you know what these are in your own terms as you wait to see the faithfulness of God in daily, weekly, monthly things when troubles are coming at you fast and heavy. Well, Acts 18 does indeed find Paul under a kind of strain or duress, and it isn't so obvious when you would just read this for the first time. You have to put this together with what's going on in the rest of his ministry maybe compare it to several different epistles that he writes, like, and I'll make those comparisons in a few minutes, and see what's, what's happening behind the scenes. A lot of difficulties were facing Paul. Here he was in a brand new city, one of the largest cities of the ancient world, a, a port city famous for its trade and famous just as much for its very decadent morals or immorality, really. He was just coming off a ministry trip to Athens, which did not go very well. He was more or less rejected there, spurned by the intellectuals who sneered at him. His spirits were dragging, and I'm going to show you some reasons why. But our text is a great testimony to divine faithfulness in the everyday work and actions and life of a disciple of Christ. We too can join Paul in looking for a God and Savior whose mercy flows to match the challenges that come against us. First of all, I just have two main points. My first point is to see the challenges, the difficulties. And I want to say to you this, life's troubles got stacked on top of each other for Paul. I want to show you that. We picture him as a bold and strong man that we think just handles anything that comes, but I think this was one of the lower points, actually, in Paul's life, after his conversion, that is. There are definite reasons to see why he was under stress and he was in a very discouraged state of mind. Let me suggest four major things that 
would be troubles of life stacked on top of each other for Paul. The first was his isolation, the fact that he was alone, not just as he arrived in Corinth, but before this. He had been alone for a period of weeks or even months. His partnership with Barnabas was well past. That was, they had parted company and gone separate ways in ministry, and he had other companions, Timothy, Silas, Luke, but none of them were with him right now. They were off doing different things, tending to other congregations, nurturing other churches. Now, I'm sure there are many people here who are probably a bit like me, uh, people who are able to work well alone. You, you're, I guess you'd be called a self-starter. You don't have to have somebody standing you over you every day to write you your to-do list to make sure you get something done. Paul was certainly this kind of person, highly motivated, highly disciplined, and yet even someone like him, under the strain and stress of isolation, can start to unravel. Paul needed people to build him up, to lend their complimentary gifts to him, maybe even to criticize him. I need that. I sure didn't think I needed it when I was a younger man. When people criticized me, I was quite sure they were just dead wrong. Now I stop and listen long and hard and say, well, they may not be 100% right, but there's something I have to hear in what they're saying. We need people around us to establish boundaries for us, to support us, to speak encouraging words to us. I just rejoice before God, not only before a wife who does that extremely well, but with staff members and colleagues and leaders in this church and ministry friends and others who keep me on track. And if I was as isolated as Paul became here, facing the kinds of things he was facing, I really think I would have probably been in a little bit of a spiral of self-pity and maybe beginning to lose my perspective. Well, secondly, on top of his isolation, you add the fact that Paul was facing a vast challenge here in this city of Corinth, one of the biggest cities of the ancient world. It was a shipping port. If you look for it at the tip of Greece, trade came all the way from China in the east and India and other places came through the Mediterranean. Ships loaded and unloaded at Corinth went on to parts of Europe and down the coast of Africa and so on. Everything passed through Corinth, and it was a big city. I'm seeming to understand from the research I've looked into that it had more than half a million people, perhaps as many as 700,000 in the larger metropolitan area. That's a huge city for the ancient world, huge. There were very few places with that many people at that time. To come there and say, I'm going to drive a stake in the ground, I think I'll see if I can evangelize Corinth, would be like me getting on a bicycle and saying, I'm off to New York City to conquer it for Christ. You know, I'd probably be riding my bicycle around New York City a long time before I decided what to do or how to begin. One commentator said, if you want the capsule summary of Corinth in three C's, here's how you can know about this city. Corinth was cosmopolitan. It was commercial and it was corrupt. A huge city, very sophisticated in many ways, all kinds of cultures crossing here, east and west, and rampant immorality. The big temple of Venus that was there in Corinth, at least at a time not too long before the Paul's day, actually employed at least a thousand 
temple prostitutes who did business in the streets of Corinth. Now, some place that big needs not one man captivated by the gospel of Christ. It could use every single person in this congregation turned loose upon it to begin witnessing and try to build churches there. Paul had an enormous challenge. And I want to just stop for a second here to editorialize off to the side to say that this challenge of his should remind us of what the major mission challenge is in the 21st century. Many of us perhaps have a very outdated idea of missionaries. We picture that prototypical guy, you know, with the the jungle pith helmet uh, marching through some jungle trail to reach a tribe of cannibals that nobody's ever reached before. Well, there are still some missionaries doing that kind of work. But let me tell you, most missionaries today are in the great urban centers of the world. I was totally astonished by some statistics, and I won't go on with this very long because this is a side path, but did you know that in 1850, 160-some years ago, they believe, statisticians will say, there were about four cities on our planet that had more than one million occupants. Four in 1850. Now, in the 21st century, it is estimated there are at least 500 cities with more than one million inhabitants. That is amazing within a century and a half. Absolutely amazing. Half the world's population now lives in huge urban centers. That's where the mission field is, just as it was in Paul's day. Well, a third problem that we could raise here for Paul, and it was a a really stressful one, was the way his own Israelite people were rejecting him everywhere he went. He started out going in temples. He'd say, well, I've got a natural way to be able to enter a a synagogue, not a temple, a synagogue, and there to dialogue and talk about the Old Testament because that's what they did. They were happy to have a visiting rabbi come say, oh, Rabbi Paul from Tarsus, come and tell us your views about Isaiah or something. That was welcomed. And Paul would start showing how Isaiah pointed to Christ. And then things would get a little touchy. So touchy, in fact, that the arguments that ensued sometimes had Jewish countrymen or people with the same ethnicity as Paul chasing him to the next town he went to or even the second town after that, causing riots against him. Well, that seems to come to a head here in Corinth. I don't know how long exactly he ministered in the Corinth synagogue. There were not a lot of Jews in Corinth, but this is where he got his foothold, and he was at this synagogue, and he, things rose quickly to a sharp uh, argument. You can see at verse 6, they opposed and reviled him, and this time he didn't say, well, I'll patiently come back tomorrow, or I'll patiently come back next Sabbath. He rose up in righteous indignation, like a prophet of, the, of old, shook his garments out and said, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent, and I'm out of here. And he left. Now, this was a landmark move by Paul in his ministry. He did go to synagogue some after this, but primarily from here on, his ministry was aimed more directly in places where he went to the Gentiles. And he certainly must have had some misgivings and second thoughts. Did I do the right thing? Was that just my temper getting the better of me? Is this really what God wants me to do? Have I been too harsh? 
Even strong-minded people can second-guess themselves when they're under that kind of stress. And then a fourth thing that we know was a trouble of life stacked up against Paul was shortage of funds. I don't know if you've ever met a missionary who said, "Uh, don't give to me. I'm not here to raise money. I have all the money I need for missions. (laughs) I'll ask our missions committee how many times we've ever heard that from a missionary. Actually, a few times. There are the occasional missionary who will say, my account is well supplied. Thank you. I, I don't need more this year. But just about any time you're going to meet somebody in the calling of missions and, and evangelism that say, I can use your funds. And here was Paul who set out from Antioch with gifts to get him started and take him on down the road quite a ways. The funds ran out for whatever reason. He was traveling by ship. That wasn't free. He had to eat every day. He had to stay places. And we read that he had to do this famous craft or skill that he had, make tents. There's a big debate about whether that means literally tents out of canvas. Some say it means leather working, but in any case, it was work with a needle to make different things. And that was what rabbis had been trained to do, by the way. Nearly every rabbi had some skilled trade like that in which he could fall back and support himself. So Paul was able to do this, but of course, he's not evangelizing and and being with people when he's busy making tents. Now, you might think I'm exaggerating the troubles of Paul that stacked up, but one reason I know I'm not is because of something in the letter that he wrote to this church later on, the letter called 1 Corinthians. And in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he describes his state and his situation as he had originally come to them. He was reminiscing a little bit. And in 1 Corinthians 2-3, he says it. When I first came to you, I was with you in weakness and fear. And much trembling, the great, strong, intellectual Apostle Paul. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Life's troubles were really stacked up against him at this moment. Well, I wanted to turn then, and in the second place, and for most of our remaining time, look at how God answered these troubles all stacked up with his mercies and his works of grace. Not with a single stroke. You know, no fire on Mount Sinai, no dramatic resurrection from the dead. That's the important issue here with the whole series of small ways in which God had his specific mercies to match each trial and trouble. First of all, here's one. The problems of being alone and the problem of running out of funds were both addressed in this provision. Look at how Paul just happened. Now, I'm saying this. Remember, a city of more than half a million people where he'd never been before, he just happened to meet a husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla, who had lived in Rome, had been kicked out of Rome by Caesar's edict a while before, had come and established a tent-making business in Corinth, Paul finds out about them, finds out they were of Jewish background, they were followers of Christ, and they were tent makers. He had friends, and he had employers. Paul, with one stroke, begins to meet his economic need and his friendship and encouragement need. In fact, with something that was going to become a lifetime friendship. We know this because later on, Romans 16, Paul is mentioning Aquila and Priscilla, who stayed in his life. 
who helped him out in ways later on. And Paul says in Romans 16, they risked their very lives for me. Remarkable. In a strange place, God had two Christians waiting to encourage and employ Paul. That was God's work. And it ought to cause you to ask whatever troubled situation you're in, who has God put in my life? I'm so busy thinking about being overwhelmed with my problems. Who has he put in my life who is an active encourager? Who is really here as God's spokesman to me and God's strengthening to me? Well, another pair of people came back into his life in verse 5 here. Timothy and Silas, his associates, his junior uh, missionaries, came from the places where they had been. And they brought not just their presence, but things that were of direct encouragement. Now, here you have to sort of relate to some other letters and texts and bring in some other information. But Silas came from Thessalonica, where he had been taking care of that new church. And we know from reading the early chapters of First Thessalonians that it was right at this time, Acts 18, that he brought a report to Paul about how great it was going in Thessalonica. And Paul bubbled over with joy. One of his former churches was prospering, and it gave him great joy, not prospering financially, but prospering in the gospel. And then comes Timothy from Philippi, and if you want to check it with Philippians 4.14, you can relate it with the, if you keep the timeline together of these missionary journeys and the writing of the letters and everything else, that Timothy came from Philippi, and he had something in his hand, a gift a financial gift from that congregation in Philippi to help relieve Paul. God's people knew he would have needs, and they were supplied at this time. But that's not all by any means. It goes on to a great thing here in verse 8, something totally extraordinary. God's mercy matched Paul's need as he made this angry departure from the synagogue. You would think, boy, that wasn't popular. You were sure alone when you did that. Well, look who went from the synagogue next door to the Gentiles' house with Paul. Who of all people? The president of the synagogue. It's amazing. Here he is saying to these people, you are rebellious, you are stiff-necked, you won't hear God's word that Jesus is the Christ. I'm out of here. And who follows him right out the door? The head man. It's almost enough to make us smile and laugh at the humor of God. And I would think that Crispus probably was a potential leader in the early church, having been a synagogue chairman. But then comes really the great centerpiece of of these compensating graces, and that's the vision that Paul was granted. I'll mention that now for a few minutes here. Verses 9 to 11. In the night, Paul wasn't one who was given a lot to say, oh, God gave me special revelations. But there were times when God did do this. And he received this vision... And look, the Lord was saying to him by the Holy Spirit, some impression upon him, I'm not imagining he heard a voice, but a strong impression on his mind, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, don't be silent. Let me say to you, God doesn't tell somebody, don't be afraid, unless God knows they're afraid. Paul was afraid. He was afraid probably that he had stepped too far or been too angry or been too abrupt 
in this synagogue action. And the Lord said, no, you've done the right thing. Don't be afraid. Keep going. Keep speaking. And then he said the great words, which in English are just four words. It's, it's less in the language of the original. I am with you. The covenant language of God, who throughout the Bible had to tell Moses, yes, go talk to Pharaoh. You got the instructions right. I will be with you. And time and time again in the Scripture, the Lord God had to say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He said in the Old Testament, if a mother abandons her nursing child, I won't leave you. I am with you. Simple thing. But something a Christian has to hear all the time and remember. Maybe I can speak it to you as a covenant reassurance to you as a Christian, what I've often had to tell myself from Isaiah 43 too. The Lord saying, when you pass through waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned. The flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. I am Israel, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Psalm 16, the words of David there, hearing the Lord say, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You see, the consequence of knowing of the presence of God isn't God exempt me from trouble, exempt me from stress and strain, from loneliness, from from being impoverished, from being challenged. The consequence of the presence of God is not exemption from trouble, but preservation through the trouble. That's the way God works with his people. I am with you. And then he says again in this vision, one more wonderful thing. It seems small, but it's important. Here's Paul facing this busy city he's never been in before, the streets full of people from all nations milling around, people of all skin colors, all languages. He, he feels confused. He doesn't know these people. How can I minister to them? But the Lord said to him in this vision, Paul, I have many people in this city. I don't know if you can understand what a difference that makes to anyone doing Christian work. You're not just going out there and trying your hardest to say, will somebody pay attention? Knock yourself out all day long, every Sunday, whatever, and maybe somebody will hear you. If the Lord says, I have my people there, you see, then the task is just go and speak and they'll find you. Isn't that amazing? That gives a promise to every missionary, every pastor, every one of you as you witness to friends. You say, I've been beating my witness to death with this guy at work. He won't pay any attention to me. And then you'll find out at some stage of your life that somebody you weren't even necessarily speaking to was observing your life and saying, wow, I saw Christ in you. God says, I have my people in this city. What makes all the difference? And then this final thing, an encouragement of grace for Paul. And I have to summarize verses 12 to 17 very quickly, but it's, it's another thing that just makes me smile and even almost laugh out loud. Here are the Jewish opposition grabbing Paul, saying, come on, you're going to go see the head of the whole government here, Gallio, the Roman, and we're going to take care of you. Now, Judaism, you have to understand, in, in this area, not in Rome itself, but in Corinth, 
Judaism was called religio licto, a legal religion. They could practice it. Nobody would, you know, come against them for practicing the Jewish faith. Christianity wasn't yet in anybody's books. So what the Jews were saying was, look, he's practicing this odd thing, and this is an illegal religion, and Gallio, we want you to declare it such and throw this guy in jail and punish him. And look at what Gallio does. Paul's all ready to defend himself. You knew Paul can defend himself. I love the text. There's humor and irony there. When it says Paul was about to open his mouth, he didn't even get to speak. Gallio said, I'm not going to hear this. This is a discussion among you Jews about details of your own religion. I won't have any part of it. Get out of here. And what he did in that backhanded way by treating Paul's preaching as being the same as what the Jews were doing was make Christianity religio licto, a legal faith. Do you see that? They came to get Paul beaten up and thrown out, and their action resulted in a whole legal caveat being spread over Christianity for years to come in that region. Nobody arrested you for being a Christian. Great. That's the work of God, folks. Now take all this together. Here's what I'm saying. Item for item, mercies and grace from our God. Go with his people and match the troubles and match the challenges. Not necessarily in any great sweeping way, any great explosion that you say, wow, that must have been God. No, little things. A friend coming. Gifts being supplied. Some action that you wouldn't expect happening. That is the way God normally works. Are you tuned to that? That's the way he normally works in your challenges, in your troubles. And what is required is patient waiting on him. Asking him, Lord, I think you're probably working and I'm not necessarily seeing it because I'm looking for fireworks. And you're doing something quiet. Will you teach me what you're doing? Not just in the earthquake, the wind and the storm, but in the little things of everyday life. Changing, opening the way, protecting me, providing for me. Teach me that, Lord, because then I'll be able to praise you properly. If God has you in some place in your life where difficulties seem to be stacked higher than your head and they're coming at you from every direction, I bid you to ask for his deliverance to be seen step by step day by day, in a chain of daily provisions that only he can design to do and only he can powerfully perform. And when he does these things, and you wait and watch, like Paul did for a year and a half of ministry in Corinth, you will see that God alone should get the glory and praise for the end result. Let's pray together. Father, we forget you're in the still small voice, not just in the the loud event, the big miracle. You were in that wonderful resurrection that we've celebrated. In that agonizing, terrible cross, you were in those big things. But you're with us in the little things, anticipating our need, going ahead of us, creating good out of what people intend to be harm? Will you keep us patient? 
and watchful and observant so that we might be seeing this even if it has to be after the fact and then properly giving you praise. Help us, Lord, because we're pretty negligent disciples. We need your grace even to praise you properly. Help us for Jesus' sake. Amen.